This is Bob Cudmore, and you're listening to The Historian's Podcast. The much-anticipated Wonder Woman movie is out this year, but history has shown that smart women have been able to accomplish things of wonder for years. They just haven't been given the proper credit. Sam Maggs says hero status isn't reserved for people who look like Superman or Wonder Woman. Anyone can accomplish great things. Sam Maggs chronicles the lives of smart, pioneering women from the past in her book, Wonder Women, 25 Innovators, Inventors, and Trailblazers Who Changed History. Maggs presents readers with a collection of women who broke barriers as scientists, engineers, mathematicians, adventurers, and inventors. Sam Maggs is an assistant writer for BioWare, and she's the best-selling author of The Fangirl's Guide to the Galaxy, which chronicles the contributions of women in science, technology, and math. Named Awesome Geek Feminist of the Year by Women Write About Comics, Sam received her Master's in Victorian Literature and now appears on television and movie screens across Canada, and she joins us on the Historian's Podcast. Let me ask you about several of the women in your book, starting off with a woman of science. I believe it's pronounced Lisa Meitner. She's incredibly interesting. So she was a nuclear physicist in Austria around the start of World War II um, who had to flee the country because she was Jewish and was being persecuted. Um, And when she she fled to Sweden... Um, and actually was the person who invented nuclear fission, uh, which basically created the atomic bomb. She never wanted that, but uh, the unfortunate part is that her male development partner uh, ended up stealing the credit for her discovery. So we never he, he won the Nobel Prize and she didn't. Huh. It's very unfortunate. Yes, it is. And in fact, Sam, you find that's the case, uh, isn't it, with the number of these uh, women uh, inventors? Yeah, that's sort of an unfortunate recurring theme through the book is that oftentimes women would make discoveries or invent something uh, and, and find their credit stolen by their male colleagues. I think probably, I touch on this briefly in the book, but the most famous example of this is probably Rosalind Franklin, who discovered the shape of DNA, and her uh, discovery was stolen by Watson and Crick, who are in all of our textbooks now. Uh, one that I talk about in the book at length is Alice Ball, who was actually the first woman and the first African-American to graduate from the University of Hawaii with a master's degree uh, in chemistry in 1915 at age 23. And she invented the first viable cure for leprosy, But unfortunately, she died due to complications from the discovery, um, and her male boss, uh, after she passed, was like, hey, I came up with this invention, and they ended up naming the cure after him. What do you think? (laughs) A huge bummer, but since then, we've been able to dig up information about her, and I've sort of been able to right that wrong a little bit, but it's definitely a big injustice. What do you think about that uh, phenomenon? I mean, is it... uh done on purpose? I mean, just the the men figure they can get away with it, or what's the deal? I think it depends on the circumstance. A lot of the times throughout history, nobody took women seriously in terms of um, scientific development or math or medicine, so people were less likely to believe that a woman would come up with something or would be less likely to think that her discovery was credible. Uh, You often saw in some circumstances, too, that the women did it on purpose. Uh, An example of this might be 
black women inventors at the beginning of the 19th century uh, and 20th century were often reticent to take credit for their inventions because they were afraid that if white people found out a black want to buy that invention. So sometimes they would allow the credit to be taken by white white men typically. So it's uh, it's just like, it's so, there are so many injustices. I, I tried to write this book with sort of a lighthearted, like sense of humor. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it's one of those, like, if you don't laugh, you're going to cry. Right. <laughs> when you read about these stories and I wanted them to seem really accessible kind of injected them with a bit of sense of humor because uh, you got it okay uh, let me ask you about uh, a woman of medicine Anandibai Joshi or how do you pronounce that Anandibai Joshi yeah this is actually one of my favorite stories in the whole book Anandi was born in India in 1865 she was a child bride at a time when women weren't even allowed to go to school And she ended up actually being the first Indian woman to cross the ocean and get a degree in medicine in America because she had become pen pals with a young widow in New Jersey named Theodicia Carpenter. And Theodicia sponsored her, brought her over, and Anandi got her her degree in in medicine uh, when she was just 23. How about that? And also a woman of innovation, Huang Daopo, uh, in in the field of textiles. Oh yeah, Huang Daopo is very interesting because she was in China um, in the in the 1200s, so really very very long time ago, um, and ended up discovering how, basically how to make the cotton gin about five centuries before Eli Whitney. In, in the Western world, made that same development. So we, we had some catching up to do there on that one. <laughs> I guess we do. It kind of reminds me of, didn't the Chinese do printing way before the, the Gutenbergs or something like that? They did. There's another girl in the book, too, Wang Zhenyi, who in the 1700s was the first person to discover how a lunar eclipse worked. And that was about the time where in the West they were still trying to figure out whether the Earth was flat or not. So they were, they were a little bit ahead of us on that one, too. I I want to uh, ask you about a woman of espionage, because uh, as the Historians podcast uh, rolls on in this episode, I'll be telling about another uh, woman who uh, was a spy. But you talk about Sarah Emma Edmonds. Who was she? Oh, I like this one because I'm Canadian, and so was she. Uh, She was born in Canada in 1841 and really didn't want to be relegated to just being a farmer's wife. She wasn't really satisfied with that life, so... She cut off all her hair, dressed up as a dude, moved to Detroit, and ended up joining the Civil War. Uh, as So she was dressed up as a dude in the Civil War already, and then they made her a spy. <laughs> so she was like a meta-spy wow. who was behind the scenes of, of the, the Union Army. And uh, after the war ended, she really wanted her pension, but nobody knew that she had fought in the war. So many years later, she went to a reunion of her regiment in full skirts and was like, hey, guys, it's me, Franklin. And they were all like, oh, my gosh. And she actually is, to this day, the only woman uh, buried in a cemetery for Civil War veterans. Oh, not that this is uh, Stump the Expert, but um, the woman I'm going to talk about, because I write about local history here in upstate New York, is a woman named Gertrude Sanford Legendre. She was an American socialite oh. who served as a spy in World War II. Have you ever heard of nice. her? No. All right. Well, we'll talk about her. But let me uh, ask you, having done this research and your uh, previous book uh, was about women in in science and uh, technology and so forth. What do you think uh, can be done to increase uh, representation, encourage the inclusion of women in male dominated fields? 
question. I think we're really seeing some good forward motion in terms of that now. A lot of corporations have diversity and inclusion programs, which is really important. I think on sort of a community level, you can volunteer for a lot of different programs like Girls Who Code, um, Girls Adventure Groups, the Girl Scouts. You can kind of get involved on that level to just encourage girls to follow their dreams, um, give them as many history books and programming books as, as you can, and you know, foster their interest in whatever they show passion for, um, not just the things that we're traditionally told women should be interested in. And you've done another book that, that takes a look at, at women involved in the sciences. Are you involved in the sciences? I note your uh, degree is in Victorian literature. Yeah, I did my master's degree in, in women in Victorian literature, which is sort of a departure. My full-time job now, is I, I develop video games. So I'm in the technology field, uh, which is definitely an area where you also see a really big gender gap still. Uh, so it's been it's been a really interesting experience. And uh, you've mentioned this. Uh, you're in you're in Canada. Is is there more opportunity yeah. for, for women in Canada than let's say in the United States? That's a difficult question. I think just in general, there's more opportunity in the states because you guys have so many more people than we do. Right. <laughs> we, have like, Could be. we have, like, the population of New York City and, like, the whole country, so <laughs> it's, it's a little more, you know, but there's also less of us. So I would say it's 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 pretty good on on both cases. Uh, we're in, in North America, we're very fortunate to have a lot of opportunity in, in technology right now. So All right. Well, Sam Maggs, the book is called Wonder Women 25 innovators, inventors, and trailblazers who changed history. Thanks for joining us, unless there's something else you wanted to bring up. No, thank you so much for having me. Take care. We'll continue on the Historian's podcast with the story of Gertrude Sanford Legendre in just a moment. This is Bob Cutmore. Please help us continue the Historian's podcast with your donation to our fundraising campaign. It's really been heartwarming getting so many donations from uh, individual people in the past uh, couple of months, and I hope that you'll be able to see your way clear to give us uh, just a little bit as we continue this fun campaign to raise $3,500 during the year. One way to donate is by going to our GoFundMe page. That's GoFundMe.com forward slash historians 2017. If you feel a little awkward doing that uh, sort of thing uh, on online, well, you can send your donation in the mail. Make a check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. As always, thank you very much. Now, Dave, I know you were interested in uh, listening to our guest, Sam Maggs, talk about women in science and other fields of endeavor. Uh, you, your eyebrows raised, I could tell, when you she came to the part about the woman who came up with the DNA codes. I never, never knew that, Bob. I mean, that sounds serious, actually. Yeah, and it does seem to have happened a lot uh, that men took credit for the— uh, inventions and other developments of, of women. Um, but the, it, I have to say that Sam Maggs was, no, I don't know if the word is charitable, but she said there were a lot of reasons. Sometimes, you know, there were good reasons to do that, but other times it was just that guys wanted the glory. One field that she talked about, espionage, 
Uh, and uh, she discussed a spy who was working for the Union uh, during uh, the American Civil War, although uh, she was a Canadian, Sarah Emma Edmonds. And I mentioned then that I know a story. I feel like this is a school. I, I know something like that. A woman who was a spy for America who was a debutante, and she was captured by the Nazis, imprisoned for six months uh, during World War II. Her name was Gertrude Sanford Legendre, the youngest child of a wealthy Amsterdam carpet mill executive, John Sanford, and John's wife, Ethel. Uh, Gertrude was captured by the Nazis, held for six months as an American spy. Gertrude Sanford was actually born in 1902 in Aiken, South Carolina, but grew up at the family's New York townhouse, which was on East 72nd Street in Manhattan, and their Amsterdam mansion on Church Street, donated by the Sanford family for use as the Amsterdam City Hall, which it still is. Uh, it was donated by the Sanfords to the city of Amsterdam in 1932. Now, John Sanford, Gertrude's father, inherited an estate worth an estimated $40 million when his father, Stephen Sanford, died in Amsterdam in 1913. And that's still a pile of money today, Dave, but back then, that was a fortune. A pile of money, Bob. Yeah, a pile of... But, I mean, back then, I mean, $40 million, I mean, people are billionaires, um, well, like... Our president, it's, like Bill Gates, uh, it's yeah. still it's still a good go around. It is, but anyway, that meant something getting that that much money. And the Sanford family, and there were other Sanfords. In fact, John Sanford had married another Sanford. I think it was a distant cousin who came from Florida. The Sanfords are well known uh, in American history, especially the American history of rich people. But the family in Amsterdam operated a carpet mill, one of the two major carpet mills in Amsterdam, a company originally called Sanford & Sons, and then merged with another firm to become Bigelow Sanford in 1929, and Bigelow Sanford left Amsterdam in 1955. But back to Gertrude and espionage. According to the New York Times obituary, and I quote, Gertrude Sanford was in her teens when she took a hunting trip to the Grand Tetons of Wyoming and shot her first elk. Uh, for years, she pursued big game in Africa, India, Iran, and Indochina, and contributed rare specimens to museums. Gertrude married a fellow explorer named Sidney Legendre in 1929. So at the very least, Dave, I think Gertrude's kind of a tomboy. Uh, th this is getting interesting, Bob. I'm trying to figure this one out. Yeah, well, the best is yet to come, in a way. Gertrude and her two siblings, brother and sister, Laddie Sanford, who original name was Stephen, but he uh, became, was known by his nickname Laddie, and Sarah Jane, Gertrude and her two siblings, the three of them, were the inspiration for the 1929 Philip Berry stage play Holiday, which became the basis of two Hollywood movies by that name, the name Holiday, most notably a 1938 production directed by George Cukor. The movie character, Linda Seaton, was based on the Gertrude Sanford character. And guess who played Linda Seaton in the movie? 
It was Catherine Hepburn. Oh. Yeah, playing opposite Cary Grant. I mean, it was he was playing her, her boyfriend. The, the title of the movie was Holiday. It's called Holiday. Um, she, the, the character in the movie, like Gertrude and like Catherine Hepburn, is a strong-willed woman uh, based on uh, Gertrude's uh, private, you know, own life. Hepburn had been the understudy for the part when this was a, a Broadway play, you know, produced on Broadway. Well, World War II comes along, and Gertrude joined up with the uh, OSS, the Office for Strategic Services, which you may know, Dave, was the predecessor of the Central Intelligence Agency. All right, because she was such a go-getter, she just decided this is what she wanted to do. Well, you know, I think the American spy operation in World War II, was a, and uh, there's a man named, I think, Bill Donovan, who was the head of it, it tended to attract kind of well-off, maybe eccentric people. For example, I think not so much herself as her husband, Julia Child's husband, Paul Child's, I believe worked for the OSS. And Gertrude uh, Sanford, or Sanford Legendre by then, worked for the OSS. You know, I think they thought this was a, you know, they wanted to serve the country, and this was kind of a real, you know, I don't know what, dashing way to do it. So you you walk into the OSS, and exactly how do you apply for this (laughs) I don't know. But she got a job, and she worked for the OSS in Britain, and then she came over to France after the invasion took place, and she was captured by maybe by not, not being as careful as she could be. Apparently, she had um, wanted to get to the front, you know, to see what things were going on in the front. And so somehow she requisitioned a jeep, and I believe she and another person or two went to the front, wherever that front was in France, in this particular date in 1944, and they were surrounded and captured. And again, she was... Well, here we go back to the New York Times account. Held as a prisoner of war for six months, she escaped. And it's not clear to me. I imagine in some of the... Because she ended up writing books about her life. She probably explained it in more detail. But the basic point is somehow she escaped and got onto a train bound for Switzerland. The train, though, stopped short of the border, still in German-occupied territory. She got off the train ran to the border, supposedly holding up her passport and saying, American passport, American passport, and a German guard ordered her to halt or be shot. I'm not sure he actually fired. She continued, and she reached the border and safety. In Switzerland, Gertrude met with Alan Dulles, and they met in sort of a you know, upper-crust kind of way. They had dinner. And she told him all about her experiences, uh, you know, being held by the Nazis. Uh, Alan Dulles, you know, went on to be the future head of the CIA. Uh, And she told him the story of her captivity as a secretary transcribed the tale. I'd like to see that transcription, but I have not, Dave. Mm. I'm I'm staying with a bouncing ball. (laughs) That's true. Well, after the war... Gertrude Sanford Legendre comes home, uh, and home for her is not Amsterdam. She she lived her ch- some of her childhood in Amsterdam, but um, most of the Sanfords by then had decamped for southern climes, 
And she chose her birthplace, really, South Carolina. She was born in South Carolina. And she and uh, her husband had an estate there. He died in 1948. She lived to the age of 97, dying in uh, the year 2000, and became quite well known as a grand dame of society. Uh, Her estate called Medway, a plantation near Charleston, uh, she held a New Year's Eve costume ball for 50 years. On the more substantial side, she established an environmental trust for educational purposes. She wrote two autobiographies, The Sands Ceased to Run in 1947 and The Time of My Life back in 1987. So she, Gertrude Sanford Legendre was the debutante spy, if you will. Now, that's a life to live right it, there. Right? It is. Now, if we can follow that bouncing ball back to her family... Uh, Laddie Sanford uh, was a famous polo player, her brother, and he had a, I think, minimal interest in running the carpet mills, but he was always, um, you know, maybe because he was the male of the three uh, uh, heirs, he was always the Sanford who was more or less in charge of the Sanford interest until the carpet mills uh, left Amsterdam and, and so forth. But he was probably well no- more well known as a horseman. But their sister... Uh, who w- was named Sarah Jane after their their mother, also kind of approached, what shall I say, World War II from a different direction. She married a man who was in Mussolini's government, which is really something. Right, okay. Stop uh, you know what? I'll just agree with you. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So Sarah Jane uh, married in Palm Beach, Florida, in an exclusive society wedding in 1937, a man named Signor Mario Panza, who was an Italian diplomat in Mussolini's government, also a polo player. And Panza and Sarah Jane lived in Italy during at least some of World War II. I believe he stayed there for all of World War II, but she ultimately came back to America in 1946, her husband, Mario Panza, accidentally drowned in a swimming accident near Rome in 1946. Uh, Sarah Jane uh, didn't live as long as her sister, but did live a good long life until 1985, and she's buried at Green Hill Cemetery. So that's the story of the Sanford families and some unusual connections to World War II. I would like to know more about Sarah Jane and, and Mr. Panza, but I don't know it, Dave. Boy, the next time I feel as though I'm leading a dull life, I'll know I'm leading a dull life. There you go. You're listening to the Historian's uh, Podcast. Wanted to get in a couple of other uh, stories before we wrap it up today. I know that you like the parks of New York State. I'm not a big park person, but I do like the historic parks. Uh, or, his, for, for example, uh, the one out in uh, Fort Hunter, Scahari Crossing a State Historic Site. Well, if you, uh, I saw this on uh, John Warren's uh, great uh, New York history blog. New York State has unveiled the new Empire Pass card. An Empire Pass card available for purchase. It's accepted for state parks and recreation areas across New York. It's a wallet-sized card. The new card will be offered for $80. The price saves multiple vehicle families a minimum of $50 a year. So it's a good deal. 
and the original Empire Pass decal, formerly known as the Empire Passport, will be offered as a decal for $65 and must be affixed to a vehicle so it's not shareable. So you can get these, uh, the pass and the decal, so you can visit the uh, the parks. So this gets you into any one of the parks. That is my understanding. Anytime you'd like to go. You got it. The other story I wanted to bring up had to do with buttons. This was in the uh, Times Union, written by uh, Kenneth Crow II, and it's about organizing the 3,350 buttons in the Ruth E. Howe button collection. Look at these buttons, said June Cozier of East Greenbush. They're works of art. Some of the buttons date to the 18th century, including one made for George Washington's presidential inauguration. I don't think they made a button when Donald Trump was inaugurated, but I couldn't uh, could be wrong. Let's steer away there. Man. <laughs> uh, but Ms. Cozier, president of the Half Moon Button Club of the Capital District, and Kathy Arbogast, president of the Mohawk Valley Button Club, were at the Rensselaer County Historical Society in Troy, and they're again examining these buttons when reporter uh, Crow shows up to do his story. As you might say, they said a lot of uh, collectors are very specific about what they collect. They have button clubs, button conventions, button sales. The Historical Society in uh, Rensselaer County received the Howe button collection in 1983 when the a woman died. She was a nurse, one of four sisters who grew up in Hoosick Falls and who lived in Troy. The Half Moon Button Club has spent the last three years organizing the Howe collection. They expect it will take another four years for the part-time volunteer effort to complete the work. Quite a task, Dave. I, I believe, Bob, you need good eyesight. Well, that's true. We, we probably wouldn't. We, we would be lost. I know. Now, uh, Assessing the 3,350 buttons on their 111 display cards takes time. Part of the task is placing a value on them. The George Washington button, here's an interesting fact, has an estimated value. Don't, 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 uh, uh, $40. No, it has an estimated value of 2500 to $5,000. <laughs> I feel like I'm on Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this button, madam, is worth $5,000. You got a ratty shirt, but the button's <laughs> worth about $4 million bucks. There you go. Um, Ms. Arbogast, who is with the Mohawk Valley Button Club, said early buttons were so valuable that highwaymen who robbed gentlemen in 18th century England would cut the buttons off their clothing. <laughs> That's interesting. It is. Now, um, I do think I should get a, in touch with the Ms. Ar- Arbogast uh, of the Mohawk Valley uh, Button Club, Kathy Arbogast, because I do know that my beloved uh, native city of Amsterdam years ago had a button manufacturing company called Chalmers, Chalmers Button Shop, or Ch- Button Mill. And they used to market their... Uh, well, I think they called them pearl buttons, but they really weren't made out of pearl. They were made out, I think, out of shells, you know, like seashells. What were buttons generally made from? Metal? Well, metal, but I think th- that the shells were big for a while. I think now they're, Dave, they're, a lot of them made out of plastic. Mm-hmm. But they suppose that they had a little sh- uh, a factory, and the Ch- Chalmers had several factories in Amsterdam. And there was a like a family of well-off people, not as well-off as the Sanfords probably, but... Um, they made so many buttons that supposedly when they built a, 
a park in Amsterdam once. They paved the little pathways with discarded buttons. Clever idea. From the Chalmers Mill. So so there we have it, Dave, another edition of the Historian's folks, Podcast. Folks, look at what you have learned today. That's true. We talked about women in science, medicine, and espionage, and also we <laughs> talked about getting into the parks, and also we've uh, talked about history as told through the buttons. You're listening, you've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, along with Dave Green, I'm Bob Cutmore.